This week at Hope Point. Jesus' kingdom, as he says, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. This is the parable part. Now let me explain what he means. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus makes clear there are two categories for people to fall into. It will be the righteous and the wicked. And Paul has already clarified the righteous are only righteous if they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Everyone else is the wicked. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24 today, Colossians 1, um, verse 24. And we're going to just jump right into this. Paul begins this little passage. Uh, He hits the ground running with a pretty pretty, uh, heavy phrase for us to unpack. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Those are two concepts that if you've been here for here recently, at least you've gotten pretty familiar with just a few weeks ago, uh, Dan delivered an incredible message to us on what it looks like for the Christian to rejoice, rejoice always, rejoice in all circumstances. And the entire last year and and then some change has been spent walking through the book of Revelation where we have seen countless examples of the suffering church that's just waiting for Christ's return. And so these are two concepts that we're very familiar with, but here we see them paired together, rejoicing in sufferings. And we need to unpack what Paul is really getting at there. This idea of them being combined is, we've seen it as an example in his life. If you remember in the book of Acts, where he and Silas sat in a Philippian prison cell, chained and they spent their midnight hours in worship, singing hymns to God. We see this idea of rejoicing in sufferings. We would hear Peter in the book of First Peter speak of to the, the scattered believers saying to consider it pure joy when you face various trials. And even the example of Christ as he awaited the cross, Paul would say of him that, that he counted it joy to take upon the cross, right? That, that uh, it, was the, it was the joy set before him to go to the cross. So there is this idea throughout the New Testament of suffering being matched with rejoicing, them going together. Um, And I just want to clarify as we look at that, that there's not this just deep desire of the Christian or of Jesus or of Paul to experience pain. There's nothing like fatalistic about this where they just are like looking for hurt and looking for hardship and like just not desiring to enjoy the the good pleasures and comforts of this world. Obviously, God created all these things for us to enjoy. I don't think Paul had a uh, like a, a bucket list of prisons he wanted to tour before he died or anything like that. There's really something else going on here, and we notice it that the rejoicing in sufferings is for your sake. And so, what is clear to us is that Paul's not just happy about the fact that things hurt or that there's pain or that he's experiencing hardship, but it's for your sake, that there's a a bigger purpose to the suffering. I I like the way that J.D. Greer puts it. He says, 
Joyful sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something you love even more. So when you give up something, when you sacrifice, when you're called to suffer, there's rejoicing in that when the thing you love even more than the, the other things you love, comfort, safety, happiness, good things to love, if you love something else more, you're willing to sacrifice for that. And you're willing to be joyful when you sacrifice for that. He would go on to say, you rejoice in suffering when what you are gaining through suffering is greater than what you are giving up in suffering. And so we see the relationship here that rejoicing has in suffering. It's because we recognize that we're gaining something greater in it. I was, maybe this story will help you understand this. It's kind of a light way of thinking about it, so I apologize. But when I was growing up in Sri Lanka uh, as a teenager, um, there were many times where I was homesick. We were there for seven years. Many times where I missed things about American life. Uh, and one, you know, one thing really in particular that I was homesick for, it wasn't a person or an experience or like a place. It was, I just come around and say it, I, I miss Pop-Tarts. When I was there, uh, I was homesick for Pop-Tarts. I loved Pop-Tarts, treasured Pop-Tarts as a teenage boy. My wife's now told me they're poisonous. I'm not allowed to eat Pop-Tarts anymore. Uh, there's an ingredient in there that's apparently really bad. Uh, so it's been you know, a long, long time since I've had a Pop-Tart. But in my old days, my heathen days, Pop-Tarts were one of my favorite things about life. And we couldn't get them in Sri Lanka. But a couple times a year, once or twice a year, Teams would come from, from home and work with us for a week or two, kind of like this rice bowl trip I was just telling you about. And they'd be friends from home, family members, people from our church, and we'd go to the airport to greet them, and we'd be excited when we saw them, but the whole time I'm scanning the group, trying to figure out which person had the suitcase that was loaded with American junk food. And sure enough, every time there'd be a few boxes uh, of Pop-Tarts for us to enjoy. Well. Another thing you need to know about Sri Lanka, not only do they not have Pop-Tarts, there's a huge, you probably didn't know about it, there's a huge ant crisis in Sri Lanka. Ants are in everything there. And so, and ants also, like I did, just treasure Pop-Tarts. <laughs> and so when we would get these, this stash, uh, we had to lock it down. I mean, they already have their foil wrapper and then they're in a sealed cardboard box. So we'd put that in a big gallon size freezer Ziploc bag and then sometimes double bag that. And then we would lock it in this big black plastic crate that sat in the corner of our kitchen only to be brought out on special occasions, like national holidays, um, when it was a day to eat a Pop-Tart. And so I remember one of these days, uh, I think it was Mother's Day, one really special day, and we were going to have Pop-Tarts for breakfast. Go through the process to get into, the, into the, the big crate and open the Ziploc bags, open the cardboard box, rip open the wrapper, and there were all these holes in the Pop-Tart, you know, where the sprinkles were supposed to be, this blueberry Pop-Tart, just ants crawling their way out of the Pop-Tart. So I had a dilemma at that point. I wanted the Pop-Tart, treasured this Pop-Tart. But I also loved the comfort of not, you know, experiencing pain and uh, ant bites on your tongue. And so I had to decide what did I love more in that moment. And I joyfully rejoiced in the suffering of 10 or 12 ant bites <laughs> as I ate that Pop-Tart. 
Because what I loved more than the comfort in that moment was to enjoy that Pop-Tart. I know, don't read too much into that analogy. That's not a great example. But maybe that'll help you a little bit see what Paul is trying to get at here. There is something greater being one in our suffering that gives us cause to rejoice, even if it's painful or inconvenient or not as fun as we would like, even if we have to give up certain things. And uh, that suffering for us really comes in two forms. Uh, you have the outward suffering as a believer, someone who bears the name of Jesus. We don't have to, we as in this group right here in this room, we don't experience it as much as many of our brothers and sisters do around the world, but the suffering they bear of persecution simply for just bearing the name Jesus uh, their safety is at constant risk. Their livelihood is at constant risk. This is a very outward, visible form of suffering that many who would call the name of Jesus experience. We haven't gotten there yet. It, it does seem like we're headed there. But all of us experience a much more real inward form of suffering as people who bear the name of Jesus. The inward struggle and constant war with our own flesh that calls us back to the life before we follow Jesus. This is a real suffering all of us experience. The daily wrestling with doubt and anxiety and questions, is this the way to go? Should I hold on or go back? Mix in with that the constant pressure and pull and, and weight of temptation and remaining sin that we still see in our own hearts. The Christian suffers, no question whether it be that outward form or that inward form. And yet we hear Paul say emphatically, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. I'm seeing something greater being one in light of my suffering. And what is that greater thing? He, he says, for your sake. He's speaking to a church, speaking to Colossian believers. So there's something about this idea of church that makes his suffering worth it. And he's going to show us this church here in a moment. If you saw the title, it's the Trinity's church. And this text here, these next few verses, in these few moments, I want to show you three things about this Trinity's church that gives Paul great reason to endure and rejoice and be perfectly okay with the hardships of life. It's the Trinity's church. What he's going to show us is that we are parts of Christ's body, given the message of illuminating God's mystery, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the Trinity's church, Christ's body with God's mystery by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll see as we look at these, uh, these verses ahead of us. But continuing on in verse 24, where I left off, he says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, hopefully something jumps out at you right off the bat about this, it seems off. He says that there's apparently something lacking in Christ's afflictions. And you should probably notice that that doesn't sound right. That Christ was somehow in his suffering, his physical body was somehow missing something. There was something lacking that needed to be added to his worth. Obviously, we know that this Christ he's talking about not only endured a life of living on planet Earth and all of the hardships that come with that and the discomforts of that, but then he was unjustly beaten. He was forced to wear a crown of thorns. He had to carry the weight of his cross and then be hung up on the weight of his own body on that cross with the pain of the nails, the stab of the spear, the sting of the vinegar, and eventually before his final breath would say what? It is finished. Nothing lacking. Nothing missing completely satisfying the wrath of God. 
Christ's physical body had nothing lacking. There was nothing more to be done in order to make salvation available to his people. And yet, Paul says, we're filling up what is lacking. And so to understand what he means here, we need to understand what he means by his body. Because clearly, he can't be talking about his physical body. His physical body needs to suffer no more. Salvation's available. The wrath is appeased. God is okay with humanity because of the work of Christ, as long as that humanity is covered in Christ's blood. So what is the work that is lacking, the work that still needs to be done, the afflictions that aren't yet complete? Well, he clarifies for us, that is the church. So while Christ's physical body is no longer in suffering and no longer needs to suffer, it's done enough, Christ's spiritual body, which is us, the church, still has work to be done. And in the same way that Christ's physical work in his body on earth led to suffering because the enemy hated what he was doing, making salvation available to us, there was suffering to be had. So in the same way for us, if we're going to continue his work in taking that salvation that's been made available to, to, to mankind and now making it accessible to mankind by delivering the message of the gospel, we should expect that we too are going to have to experience some of this. Um, Henry Alford would say of this, just as the Messiah was to be known by the path of suffering he freely chose and is recognized in his risen body by the mark of the nails. Think about that. The way that people identified Christ after the resurrection was by his marks of suffering. So his people are to be recognized by the sufferings they endure. Because while his work was completed, there was still a job to be done. Making that word known in all the nations. And Christ warns us. In John 15, he himself says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If we are going to pick up the, our part to play in Christ's body just as he suffered for bringing salvation to us, we will likely suffer as we seek to make that salvation made known by, by all the nations. This is what comes with it as we play our part in the mission of being Christ's body. And this is the mission that Paul feels responsible. It feels like he's been given. He'll go on in verse 25 to say of which this church that he's talking about, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, God has entrusted this work to him. He didn't earn it or fill out a job application for it. God entrusted him this work that God that was given to me for you, the sake of the church, to make the word of God fully known. This role of minister or servant, leader, that Paul feels over the church. That is the mission of the church, to make the word of God fully known. What Christ has done to make salvation possible, to make enmity with God become friendship with God, it comes through this process here of making the word of God fully known. Well, so that's the first part here of the Trinity's church, playing our part as Christ's body, in enduring suffering, doing the work of Christ, namely bringing salvation to the world by making the word of God fully known. Well, if that's, the, if that's the mission of Christ's body, then what is the message of Christ's body? Number two, that's the mystery that we keep hearing about in the passage. Verse 26 and 27, he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You'll notice it twice. He says the words mystery here in chapter one. He loves this idea of the mystery. Chapter one, he says hidden for ages. Then verse 27, he says this mystery, which is Christ in you. Then in chapter two, he'll say God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And then in chapter four, he'll say the mystery of Christ. So four times in a, in a, in a very short book, this idea of a mystery keeps coming up. Paul's obsessed with this, this mystery. And when we hear that phrase, I mean, we're probably tempted to think of like a puzzle or some secret that's hidden that, you know, only the smartest person in the room is going to be able to solve. And there's all these clues hidden around. And we'll see if someone figures it out before the end of the movie. That, this isn't really what Paul means by a mystery. Really, we're, we're looking at the idea of God's wisdom and his plan for the world from the beginning of time that for a time was hidden and just these little subtle reminders or clues were left in, in scripture, but now it's been revealed. That mystery has been revealed. We had the clues before. Who, who is this snake crusher in the garden in Genesis 3? Who, who was this fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham? Who was the lion king of Judah? Who was the great high priest? Who is this lamb? Crumbs were dropped all along the way, pointing the way through to a trail of God's mystery that's now been unfolded. And that mystery is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great mystery of God. Jesus Christ is the great mystery of the universe, the galaxy. Every question, every wonder of purpose. Why does this happen? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's going on in this world? The answer to all of those mysteries, the person and the work of Christ. In the very next chapter in Colossians, Paul will unpack what this person did that was so mysterious. In chapter two, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's something mysterious about that, that God would take dead sinners who were far from him, enemies of him, and through the work of his own son, the sacrifice of his own holy son, choose to forgive them. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The very real record that carried weight was canceled, erased, completely removed, blotted out by the work of Christ on your behalf. This is the mystery of Christ. On our behalf, what we carried has been removed. Very real legal demands were there, but it's been removed. He'll go on to say, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross with a bleeding Savior was every sin, every burden you have carried and will carry, nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There are no, there's no longer a ruler or authority or source of power that looks at you with a finger pointing and saying, you are guilty. Not even your conscience. That's the biggest authority that speaks against me is my own conscience. Look at who you were. Look at what you did. 
Christ has completely disarmed that enemy. Nailed those sins to the cross and said, you are free. This is the mystery of the work of Christ. And what's so interesting about this, if we return to our text, this Christ who disarmed these rulers, who nailed your sin to the cross, who removed the debt that you, that you had before God, now where do we see him in, in our life? Look at the end of verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Christ who did all of that, accomplished all of that, made right humanity before God, now resides in you, Christ church. The Holy Spirit living within us, giving us hope of glory, giving us a a reason to stand out. Notice the the Gentiles he refers to, to them, the saints, the, the church, us. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, among the outsiders, among those looking in our doors to see what's going on in this church, we have been given Christ within us, hope of glory that stands out that leaves the Gentiles, the outsiders, just amazed at the riches of the glory of this very mystery as they see it lived out in our lives. That is the message of Christ's church. The message of the Trinity's church is this right here, the mystery of God, that Christ would live in us through his work on the cross. Beautiful picture here of what what we've been called to be as a church. So we've been given a mission to be Christ's body and finish the work he started. We've been given a message, the good news of the gospel, that sinners can be set free, the debt removed. Well, then what is the method of how we are to live this out? He's going to tell us in verse 28, the verse I already read to you earlier, says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And if you were paying attention, if you heard this either just now or when I read it at the beginning of the service, he's obsessed with this one word, everyone. Three times he says it in one sentence. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone is who Paul is concerned with. His goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. I think what we see here is Paul's very keen awareness that one way or another, everyone will be presented before Christ. Everyone will be. No exceptions. The question is not if they will stand before God. The question is how will they stand before God? If you have any doubts about that, we'll let Jesus clear this this up. He would tell people in the book of Matthew, the parable of the net, verses 47 and 48, again, the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, as he says, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. This is the parable part. Now, let me explain what he means. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus makes clear there are two categories for people to fall into. And it will not be rich and poor. It will not be good and not so bad. It will not be religious and unreligious. It will be the righteous and the wicked. 
And Paul has already clarified the righteous are only righteous if they've been washed by the blood of the lamb. Everyone else is the wicked. I hope Christ's very words of what happens to the wicked stir our hearts to take this call seriously. Paul recognizes everyone will stand before God and give an account. He would tell the Romans in chapter 14, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I think we would think about people a little differently if we saw this reality in their life. Every one of them will stand before God one day. I remember very vividly when this became a reality for me. It was back in Sri Lanka. I was there on a trip in college. I was on a bus ride from the east coast of the island to the west coast of the island, which only takes about six hours. It's a small island. But bus rides in Sri Lanka are like notorious for just being packed. Let me give you a picture of what it's like. This is, this is your uh, picture of a bus in Sri Lanka, um, just loaded with people getting on and off, on and off. And I'm on this ride for the long haul, six hours. And I get into a conversation with a, with a man. He's a father. He's got his young toddler son with him. And I'm hearing about his family, hearing about his beliefs, hearing about how devout he is in his religion, though it be a false one. And one thing that's interesting about these bus rides, people in Sri Lanka, as in many other places around the world, are a lot more obvious about their religious affiliations and just the way they present themselves. Like you don't hear, you don't, you know, typically walk into a grocery store and like see on someone's face, I'm an atheist. You have to kind of dig through some things to, in conversation. In Sri Lanka, it's, it's, it's right there in front of you, the way they present themselves. I mean, you, you'll see the, the white bracelet on someone's wrist that say, I was at the Buddhist temple this week, or the brown dot on someone's forehead that the priest, the Hindu priest put on their forehead after they left the alms. Or you might see the white cap or the burqa uh, on, on a Muslim um, that symbolize their, their affiliation with, a, with a re- another religion. So it's in your face there. You see it so directly. And I was so struck by how devout this man was, especially as I thought of how I felt most of the people that I loved and cared for who were believers in Christ treated their relationship with him. I mean, I'm like, this guy, he's so much more serious about his faith than we are, and yet he's barking up the wrong tree. And in broken you know, conversation, we're able to, to, to share the gospel slightly with him, and then he gets to his stop, he gets off the bus, walks out with his son, and as I saw him leave, I was hit with the reality that that was my one chance. I'd never see him again. No way I'd see him again, which immediately hit me with the second thought, will anyone else ever have the chance to pull this guy out of the fire? I missed it. I had the chance. And he would get off the bus with his son who would follow him the rest of his life to be just like he was and be just as lost as he was go home to a house surrounded by members of his family who were looking to him to point them in the direction they were to go, which was the wrong one. And as devout as they are, as serious about their religion as they are, it's a dead one. And the hardest part was to think that his home would sit on a street in a village surrounded by nine or 10 other homes filled with 50 or 60 other people who were just like he was. 
which of course compounded when I look around the bus because he's replaced with another new guy who comes and gets on the bus and sits right in his place. And I look around and there's a Muslim man and a Hindu woman and, and a bus packed full of people just like him who at their stop, get off, go to their village full of people just like them. I'll never see them again. And if nothing changes, if someone doesn't go and share a message with them, the bus, which has 70 people on it, represents probably a thousand people, is headed directly to the flames of hell. It was in that moment as a 21-year-old that my heart was broken over what Paul is getting at in this verse. Everyone, everyone will give an account. And so in light of that, we must take this urging serious in, in verse 28. Him we proclaim. In light of the fact that everyone will give an account before God, every orphan in Honduras, every 20 million people in Sri Lanka, every young child who lives in the Barksdale apartments down the road, every per six of the 68 members at the Miracle Hill uh, Rescue Mission right now, every person in your neighborhood and at your school and at your work, every one of them will stand before God and give an account for their life. And so him we proclaim. We proclaim him. And I love that he says, him we proclaim. It's not just that we proclaim a message. We proclaim him. Our primary message to the world is not one of self-help or wellness or mindfulness or social political issues. Though they're important and though they deserve our voice, our primary message to the world that we proclaim is Christ crucified. Christ resurrected, Christ to save you from your sins. That's what we proclaim. And he makes it practical for us. He, he shows us exactly how we proclaim. We do a couple of things. First, we, we warn people. We warn everyone of their sin and their separation from God. This is called evangelism. We share the gospel message with them. Because of your sin, you're far from God. He longs to bring you back into the fold. He made a way for you through his own sacrifice. If you will repent, believe in him, welcome warn everyone. But we don't just warn them so we can pull them out of the fire and leave them. We teach everyone with all wisdom. So the second thing then is we want to teach everyone. And this is a picture of discipleship. So while the warning is more our evangelism, then we want to disciple people, teach them how to follow Christ, how to become more like Christ, walk them through a process of sanctification, becoming more like him. With what goal in mind that eventually we can present them mature in Christ. This is the, the end goal. If they're going to be presented before Christ, and that's a certainty, we want them to be mature when they arrive. And by mature, we don't mean perfect or like completely made right. Obviously, uh, I, I won't be perfected until I'm given my new body when I see Jesus face to face in fullness. But in the meantime, we want to, we want to be uh, in the process of becoming like him. I love the way that uh, Dallas Willard calls this process of discipleship um, and, and sanctification. He says, I'm learning from Jesus how to live my life, my whole life, my real life. I need to be able to lead my life as he would lead it if he were me. 
This is what discipleship is really about. This is what this, the process of sanctification is really about. Learning to live the life that God has given us the way Christ would live it. That's what Christ-likeness means. Obviously, we're not called to live Christ's life. He already did that, and we can't do that. We're not Christ. But the 985 decisions I will make today, hopefully, I'm making them the way Christ would make them if he were me. And this is what we do when we teach people in all wisdom that we may present them mature in Christ. We're teaching them to live this way. Here's what it means to follow Christ. Paul, also in the book of Colossians, would say this about the process of discipleship. This is how, how it should look, to be mature in Christ, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Be filled with it, with wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I believe that's what it means to be mature in Christ. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the, that's the goal of discipleship is increasing that more and more we are becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ. More and more our desires are being conformed into Christ's desires. Our decisions are being made as Christ would make them. And we, we teach this to others and we teach it to ourselves by growing in his wisdom and understanding through his word, by being inundated with the message of Christ's gospel. This is, this is how we do it. And so may this be uh, the process that we are busy with, uh, reaching every, you know, before I say that verse, um, what, what really is hard for me about that, and I, I shared you the story of the, this bus ride, that's a weighty responsibility for us to bear. The thought that everyone will stand before God and w you guys and me are responsible for making sure they're ready, that's weighty, it's heavy, overwhelming even. And so that's why I love the way Paul finishes this in verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Notice where the energy and the power to do this, to live effectively as one who is proclaiming the message of, of Christ, where it comes from. Remember, I already shared with you verse 27, the mystery is that Christ is in you. And because the Holy Spirit lives within us, not only do we have hope, which is what he said in verse 27, but we also have power, energy. This, this verse so beautifully shows the, the partnership between us and the Holy Spirit in the work of, of bringing lost people into the fold. Without the Holy Spirit's working and power, hearts can't be softened. Doors can't be opened. It's impossible, it won't happen. No matter how smart you are, how good at communicating you are, nothing you can do can convince someone to follow Jesus if the Holy Spirit isn't working in the heart of the person you're speaking to. However, without you speaking, without you proclaiming the message of the gospel, hearts can't be saved. This is the way that God has set it up. Salvation comes through hearing the word of God. And so both are necessary here. That's what's so beautiful about this verse we rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to work in us, but we also play a part. We don't just sit back and say, well, I'm gonna wait till the Spirit does a little more work in that person before I get started. No, 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 we, we toil, we struggle. Other translations say strive. That, that word used in the Greek can also be translated to mean agonizing. I mean, there's pain in that, 
agonizing toil for the sake of lost souls being brought into the family of God. This is not like a weekend hobby for Paul when he gets around to it. This is a serious call that he's chosen to give his life to because of how meaningful the outcome is. Lost souls being brought in. There's nothing flashy or trendy about this. He's calling us to a lifelong commitment to dedicated labor for the sake of winning souls. But what better cause is there to give your life to? If Christ has redeemed you, he has freed you from the bondage to sin, he has given you a new heart and a hope of future glory beyond the grave, what more could you do with this new life that you've been given than to make sure as many others can experience it too? Nothing better to give ourselves to. It's worthy of our striving. It's worthy of our toil. It's worthy of our struggle. It's worthy of our agony and even our suffering. It's worth missing out on some leisure pursuits. It's worth giving up your off day. It's worth opening your home to strangers, missing appointments, letting life get messy. Whatever cost you may be asked to pay, it is worth it for the sake of lost souls being welcomed into the kingdom of God because you are willing to proclaim the message. And it is this effort that Paul urges us to strive towards, to struggle towards, to toil with. It deserves our all. I love the way Spurgeon uh, put it pretty harshly. If, you, if any one of you teaching in your classes or officiating in any form of Christian work, in other words, whatever you do that we call Christian service, find it easy, you will find it hard to give an account of your stewardship at the Lord's coming. This is hard work, but it is worthy work. It is hard to be busy with the work of convincing lost, dead sinners that there is a way out, and it's by following the, the man Jesus. That's hard work. It's inconvenient work. If it's easy, you're not doing it right, or you're not doing it enough, according to Spurgeon, at least. But may we be people found faithful in this call, be people willing to join the Trinity's church, willing to be people who are playing their part in Christ's body to fulfill Christ's mission, which is to illuminate God's mystery, the gospel, and to do it all by the power of the Holy Spirit working on our behalf. This is what it means to follow Christ and to be a part of his church. Will you join us in that work? As you think of every, everyone in your life who will give an account to God, will you be willing to play your part? We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.